0: Bienvenidos al podcast Much Language Such Talk. Today you'll be hearing from me, Corinne, and my wonderful co-host, Maria. Hi, Maria. How are you? Hi. Nice to see you. As it's Spanish Language Day on the 23rd of April, today we're talking with Dr. Carlos Soler Montes, a lecturer at the University of Edinburgh who teaches topics such as Hispanic linguistics and Spanish language courses in the School of Literatures, Languages and Cultures, and is the university's Learning and Teaching Director at the Department of European Languages and Cultures. Before we continue the introduction, we wanted to mention that we will primarily discuss the spread of the Spanish language through colonialism with Carlos, but unfortunately, we only have an hour which is not at all enough time to cover a topic such as globally and historically impactful as it is. For more resources and links about Spanish colonialism and the history of the Spanish language, please head over to our website to learn more. Throughout his career, Carlos has also taught Hispanic linguistics and Spanish language courses at the Universities of Connecticut, Calgary, and New Mexico. And before coming to the University of Edinburgh, he also worked at the Instituto Cervantes for 10 years as an academic coordinator, curriculum specialist, teacher trainer, and quality evaluator. Carlos is passionate about studying the wide range of Spanish varieties across Spain and Latin America. As a researcher, Carlos is particularly interested in the language variation of different Spanishes and investigating it from multiple perspectives. He is interested in how this variation is dealt with by native speakers as well as Spanish language learners. More specifically, Carlos's research has examined how Spanish grammars vary across different Hispanic regions, cultural connections, and through contact with other languages. So, welcome to the episode. Hi, Carlos. How are you?
1: Thank you. Hi, Karine. Hi, Maria. I'm very happy to be here uh, with you today.
0: Are you ready to just get right on in there?
1: Yeah, I am. I'm really excited. I'm happy to, to share yeah, the, the day with, with all of you. Yeah.
0: Fantastic. All right. So, how did you get interested in studying languages?
1: Well, believe it or not, and as as you can tell by my level of English, I was really bad a student of languages. Uh, in Spain, we we start quite late with with languages. We we don't start studying English English until middle school. I, I I was not very very good on on this, but I I needed to start using languages since I decided to move out of of Spain and complete my graduate studies in the U.S. and then work in North America, in the US, in in Canada, and now here. So I guess it was a way to become a a global citizen. I have to say that I did study French in high school, and I am married to a Frenchman, so I am part of a bilingual family, and and my French is actually now much better than my English. It it is also closer to, to my native language. And I'm also a speaker of Italian, I did a year abroad in Italy, and I was able to, to, yeah, to familiarize with the language uh, that I really love as well.
0: That's so fantastic. I was going to ask you what languages you speak. So it seems that you got Spanish, English, French, and Italian in there. Is that right? Any other little ones hiding?
1: Uh, no, well, uh, I did study Greek, Latin, modern Greek for a year, but I have forgot all that. And now, yeah, I look forward at some point since I've been in Scotland for six years to study Gaelic. And I know that the university offers these Gaelic uh, courses for, for staff and students. So uh, I, I look forward to finding some time and, and, and do that very soon.
0: Do you have a multilingual family? That's fantastic. So what languages do you actually speak at home usually? Is it English? Is it French? Is it Spanish?
1: Yeah, well, we met, we actually met speaking Spanish. So that has conditioned our relationship.
0: Oh, that's so sweet.
1: And you know that these things that it, it when, when it's kind of more natural uh, uh, to use a language because you just started talking uh, uh, with that language. Uh, so it, 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 we tend to use more Spanish, but it's true that we, we use, we switch to, to French very often uh, with family, with family in France. And again, depending on the topic and uh, or the things that we're covered discussing, yeah, we, we may end up talking in French, which is also very nice to, kind of have an idiolect and a code switching, depending on on the day and the the hour of the day.
2: It's so hard sometimes to change the routines and those those schemes. If you have a language associated to a person, it's impossible. Well, not impossible, but there are languages associated to situations, persons, people, language of love or friendship. And it's hard to break those schemes for yourself.
0: So... You've taken your love of Spanish, I see, through your fun and exciting adventure through your career. Your work and research focuses on different varieties of Spanish around the world. How should we refer to these different Spanish dialects? Because I think there are the two major categories, which are Latin American Spanish, and which can also even be contrasted with South American Spanish. And then, you know, you got European Spanish or Castilian Spanish. We were actually talking about this before we started, so. How do you label or like what's the criteria that you generally would use for those kind of Spanishes?
1: Well, uh, it's true that working with, with the Spanish language, uh, we need to consider the language as a pluricentric language, which means that has various uh, centers in different uh, areas, uh, maybe even though they can be uh, very far to each other, which uh, represent a, a community of speakers, which are considered as uh, contributors to the standard and to the general language that we use. So, pluricentricity and the Spanish language is is kind of the same in a way. Spanish is divided in many geographical areas due to the history of colonization. And it has been uh, associated to European varieties, Latin American varieties. It's also spoken in Africa. So we could also talk about African Spanish. And uh, it is all very complex, sometimes uh, maybe uh, hard to to understand. But we could mainly talk about uh, European Spanish, which include at least three main varieties, Castilian, Andalusian, and Canarian Spanish. And then in Latin America, we can think about Five big areas which are divided dialectologically into uh, Mexican, Central American, Spanish, Caribbean, Spanish, Andean, Spanish, Australian, Spanish and Chilean, Spanish. But it's true that those dialects are uh, connected and the distinction between European varieties and uh, Latin American varieties is not necessarily useful depending on which type of phenomena or uh, specific structure you are studying. Because there are transnational connections that link some parts of the, for example, Iberian Peninsula to the Caribbean or uh, coastal Latin American, Spanish and other parts that are linked in some other ways. So it's it's a very complex map and very, very interesting to study. And uh, it also there's a lot of work to do still to be able to transfer all this knowledge and be able to make it more clear to users, to teachers and to learners of the language.
2: Yeah. And I think to Spaniards as well, because I don't think I ever learned this at school. And we, uh, from the Spanish perspective, we have like this central idea of like the language and we forget that there's a huge variety and there's more speakers from other varieties than actually ours. And then obviously the people who are mon- Spanish monolinguals even have a more central idea than those who are bilingual, From for instance, from Catalonia or Galicia or a Basque country. So it's very interesting. I think it should be taught at
0: school as well. Kind of what I was getting from that is that instead of just coming up with this kind of like, you know, overall terminology, whether it's like Castilian or Latin, it, it should be more kind of centered toward to say like the region or the country where the Spanish is being spoken. Is that kind of what you generally do when you talk about Specific Spanishes,
1: yeah, uh, yeah. I would rather go by by something yeah, l- l- like that, less general, because sometimes, as I'm saying, a speaker of a Spanish from Andalusia is closer to a Chilean or to a Cuban than to a Madrillian or a speaker from Barcelona or Galicia. So the connections at phonetical levels of grammar or lexicon are transnational and don't uh, have necessarily a a reflect on on geography. So that's also very interesting to take into account. And also uh, not to forget that Spain only represents 5% of the global community of Spanish speakers. So by all means, it should not be considered as the dominant variety, even though it has been placed by history and also considered as more prestigious in the past. But nowadays, the, the future of the Spanish is in the Americas and all the weight of the demographics are in the other side of the ocean.
0: That's so interesting that there is such a difference between varieties within Spain while there's literally an ocean there. And then, yeah, of course, that whole, the hierarchy, the power hierarchy that goes into Spanish and how, you know, I didn't realize that Spain was only 5% of Spanish speakers. That is less than I thought it was. But then you have to remember there's an entire continent. That's a lot of people. Okay, so you mentioned that they were similar to, like, so Andalusian and Chilean, I think is what you said, that those ones were more similar and things like that. So it seems that different varieties of Spanish are mutually intelligible so that people can understand each other when they speak this different varieties of Spanish. Or are there moments where communication breaks down because they actually speak? quote-unquote, two different Spanish?
1: Well, um, the good thing about Spanish, uh, as it happened with with other languages, is that the dialectal structure, even if it is very rich, is quite homogeneous and quite simple in terms of internal variation. But it's true that there are differences, especially when we use uh, colloquial registers. And yeah, um, some dialects are really, really close uh, due to history, due to colonization. All the all the soldiers and all the uh, population that uh, was meant to go to the Americas during the, co- the colonies was transitioning via Andalusia, via Seville, Cadiz, the main ports of exit to the New World. Uh, so the Sevillian the Andalusian accent was naturally transported to the colonies and was reproduced there and is still maintained. So we can recognize some specific uh, accent characteristics. So there's similarities on that. And uh, also uh, other varieties, for example, Indian Spanish, which is far away from the coast, uh, uh, as well as Central Mexican Spanish, can be uh, more easily connected to the central uh, dialects of the Iberian Peninsula. So there, there are these connections which are really interesting to explore, uh, as well as uh, grammar phenomena that are also linked to these two variants uh, or super dialects. There are different tendencies and, and dialogues that have been uh, built since the colonization and that are still maintained.
0: So, yes, yeah, so regionally and contact with other languages, it makes sense for those to strain differently because anything can cause a dialect uh, to change the way that it sounds, Like literally uh, like There could be a really heavy snowstorm, and surprise, you now have a river here. And so these two communities no longer speak to each other. So they start to divert in the way that they speak. But when it comes down to vocabulary specifically, when I went to high school in the States, I learned Mexican Spanish. And friends of mine who are Argentinian or from Colombia, and like in class, it was great, obviously, we'd be learning vocabulary, and they're like, that's not the word for that. And I don't know if you can answer this question, but it's like, because how did it come about that there are such differences in the vocabulary i've also learned that in argentina you have to be careful of every word you use (laughs) (laughs) so it's really interesting yeah how in one country one word means something very very common and benign and in another country maybe don't say that in public
1: (laughs) yeah that happens a lot in spanish in every country well, as you say, the the history of language contact, the history of bilingualism is at the end is the history of the language. Bilingualism is the engine that creates language change and, and evolution within, within a, a given language. And in Spanish, as the contact situations have been uh, constantly happening, very far away and uh, with different languages with very different typological languages we can find a lot of these pairs or or different solutions in different countries and this has to do with the with the period and the language by which the the new term the, the loan was introduced for example after the the colonization and the independence of the new latin american republics at the beginning of the 18th century spain was still very exposed to french influence while latin america started to be more exposed to english influence because of the emerging power of the of the us so uh, we could find a lot of technological or Lexicon or vocabulary refer to clothing, to fashion that in Spain comes from French, while in the Latin America it has been introduced directly from English. So d- depending on the context, the type of domain of, of use of the language, we will see these differences. In food, there's also a lot of richness. As we tend to keep Arabic recipes and ingredients in Spain, whereas in Latin America, all the food traditions are coming from uh, autochthonous indigenous cultures. So there's a lot of uh, variation in terms of, of food habits and, and recipes. And then, of course, in colloquial language, uh, we'll find that metaphors that, to, uh, that represent uh, for example, metaphors that we use to talk about sex, about taboos, about religion, about uh, I don't know, uh, familiar aspects or family language are totally uh, artificial sometimes, and it may uh, they may end up meaning a whole different thing in another dialect just by by luck. So that's what happens with some. Uh, Terms that are absolutely polite and innocent, naive in some areas and very, very rude in, in some others. So there's also a need to develop this uh, sociocultural, sociolinguistic competence to be able to, to reframe uh, and to understand which of these words are really, really complicated to say somewhere else.
0: God, it's so true. It's so... I, I don't want to say well, it was exciting. It's very embarrassing really, when you go to a new country and you think you speak this language perfectly fine like when i moved to the uk and you ask for certain things and people look at you being like what did you just ask me for like i'm still really used to saying like oh have you seen my pants and people are like no you're wearing trousers and i'm like oh no, no no i'm talking about my trousers i'm not talking about my underwear why would i ask you if you've seen my underwear oh no and you're just like in a classroom with nine-year-olds and they're all looking at you like, how could you have just said that to us? And you're like, oh, this is so embarrassing. Ah. You learn as you go in anywhere.
2: Like even even when I learned English, it was academic English and then I moved here and then it sounded absolutely weird. And despite my academic English is based on the British variety, but then with Spanish, I guess because in high school, you, I was exposed to different people from different parts of South America and you learn as you go and you make fun. There's always a funny joke about it and then they make a funny joke about your own variety and then you encounter someone else in the world and there's always something new you're going to learn. And You're like, wait, what? I've never heard that. And that's a variety I, I was supposed to be aware of. But it would be great if that was actually, it should all be taught at school. <laughs> it, we should all be aware of it.
0: <laughs> yes, exactly. There has to be a class. Like, it's so great whenever friends of mine who are second language speakers of English being like, haven't you heard of this phrase? And I'm like, what is it? What is this phrase? And then immediately I start hearing it in my everyday life. And I'm like, oh, oh, okay. Apparently, I've just never known what these three words together meant. That would be so great. Imagine if we had a class just for that, just so you can learn about these global varieties of the languages you speak. That would be so cool. We do learn a bit about South
2: American literature, but. It's not enough. And sometimes it's like books that have been written like 50 years ago. So at the end of the day, the language is not actually the fresh version of it kind of thing. And it's for, more formal. So the colloquial words are the ones that, which are confusing most of the time.
1: Yeah, it, it happens all the time. And it's so complex. It's, it goes beyond the languages, the culture, the attitudes, the pragmatics. The distance, uh, the way we emphasize things, the, the use of specific interjections, uh, all, all is related and can be a, a source of problems or misunderstanding. Yeah.
0: Problems and misunderstandings. Language 101. <laughs> that should be a class right there. <laughs> so we've mentioned it a few times, and this is talking about how these varieties and how this language has traveled. So we've mentioned colonization quite a few times. If you can, can you talk about what exactly was the role of Spanish during colonization? Like, is the history of the language of of Spanish in colonization similar to that of other languages like English and French? Or is it different? Or what is the role that it played there? Because it clearly it spread across the world pretty quickly.
1: Yeah, well, I guess uh, we cannot talk about Spanish without talking about colonization. It's absolutely crucial that we understand the dimension and the impact that this period of history had uh, for the language, but also for for the Spanish speaking communities and and for what is today the Spanish speaking world. Colonization was brutal, was uh, terrible, was a shaming. And it has an impact, uh, a really big impact in the language that we speak now. That impact was positive because the the heritage and the the richness or the richness of Spanish language increased uh, uh, incredibly, but uh, it was also uh, um, uh, an impact and a, and a legacy of a death of languages cultures repression and, and oppression and uh, yeah and, and all kinds of of bad things that happened while the uh, colonization took place for a uh, uh, from the, the end of the 15th century to uh, to the end of the 18th century, just before the, the independence of, of the Latin American republics. It's a bit different to if we compare it to the French or the of, of the English colonization because of the interest and the and the need of Spanish. Um, Colonizers and, and the, the politics in, uh, f- in fusioning, in becoming part of the new societies that they were conquering and that they were founding. So uh, since the very beginning in the Spanish colonies uh, we can uh, we, uh, we experience a, a history of fusion, of um, exchange and of uh, mestizaje, as we call it in Spanish, uh, which had also an immediate effect in the language and in the use of the language. Because very soon, uh, within a generation, Spanish was actually the mother tongue of many um, uh, newborns in the Americas, which uh, understood and see their world, which is which was a, a mestizo world, a, a very hybrid world, uh, through uh, the lenses of, of the Spanish language, and that did not happen uh, at the same time, with the same speed, and 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 as easier in, in other uh, uh, European uh, colonial territories. Um, To give you some facts of of what what happened, uh, there are historians that talk about 50% of indigenous communities during the the centuries of decolonization and the death of more than 1,500 languages uh, that have disappeared since 1492. So even though... Latin America is still one of the richest linguistic ecosphere. The lack and the, the, the disparation of, of so many languages is, is really a shaming and, and it does talk about what happened uh, through all, all these years of imperialism and colonization. In the other side of the of the problem, we can understand some aspects that have allowed to uh, maintain these languages. For example, the um, interest of Spain in Christianize these territories. Uh, led to the learning of the indigenous languages by the missionaries and by the church very uh, very soon, and they would they would be in charge of transcribing and uh, uh, starting to standardize these indigenous languages, uh, especially the most uh, common ones, as Nahuatl in Mexico or Quichua in uh, in Peru, uh, and and kind of register uh, and normalize these languages so they, could, so they could be learned and taught more easily. So that was also very important and that allowed these languages to be protected and to be registered uh, from that early moment. Also, very soon uh, within the, the colonial history, universities w- were uh, founded. The first university that was uh, open in, in, in the colonies Uh, is the one in Santo Domingo in the Dominican Republic in 1538, uh, just 40 years uh, after the the arrival of of Cologne, which is quite impressive and also can help us understand how the the languages, the knowledge, the, the cultural aspect of the colonization also play a role in creating a new society which was using Spanish as a way to express themselves, to, to make the language part of, of their own identity. And that's exactly what happened.
2: Do you think that Latin American Spanish and European Spanish, being split by an ocean, are they becoming more and more different because of the distance, because of other influences, because of trying to separate the histories, or are they staying or becoming more similar because we want to unite a bit, like the international language, it's Spanish is.
1: Well, that's a very good question, and it's true that there's so many things that are happening right now in terms of globalization, uh, uh, geopolitics, and, and and all that. And uh, uh, recent studies show that uh, Spanish is quite unified and is in contact uh, from both uh, sides of, of the ocean because of, of the uh, social networks, the use of, uh, of Internet, the possibility of uh, interacting with uh, Spanish speakers from from different countries. So uh, there's still this need of uh, intercomprehension within uh, the different dialects of of Spanish nowadays. But what we see today is that the Spanish-speaking world is divided into super dialects or supradialects that not necessarily correspond to Europe and Latin America. We see that there's an urban dialect which reunites uh, most of the Spanish speakers uh, living in urban areas are, are connected to the internet and to the social network, and a rural Spanish, which would be another big dialect, which uh, is unifying and connecting the ways in we keep speaking in the rural areas, and that's also transnational and is uh, also uniting yeah, people from rural areas in Spain, uh, in Latin America, in some different Ways. So it's very, very hard to understand the, the dynamics of languages and, and the power of different varieties. There's a need to use a neutral Spanish because of uh, what we are now experiencing the Netflix cessation of culture, the, the sharing of series, of soap operas, of television. And uh, it seems that the more neutral accent that is uh, tolerated in, in more countries is the Mexican accent. Uh, So uh, we associated neutral Spanish to this Mexican variant from Mexico City, which is, as being more consonant, is um, more easy to understand, to follow. But uh, as well in Spain, we have a a Madrid accent that has come as very normative within television and politicians and and the media. So there's still different norms that, that coexist and that are used and consumed by speakers in different ways
0: i i, I want to mention something about you know that whole nex- netflixization i think is the word that you use because i was like i have watched the cable girls which is like las chicas del Cable. Cab- cablas sí, i can sí. never remember which one it is yeah i, I mentioned like i had learned mexican spanish and it still happens to me whenever i hear spain's spanish speakers speaking i'm like I feel like I should know this. <laughs> and so when I started watching the show, like it was just like so immediate to me, just how different the language was. And I, <laughs> I literally i am like, I-, I need the subtitles to be a little bit bigger. Cause I can't keep up with it as quickly. Um, it's true. And like, there's a show in the States called Jane, the Virgin, which I think did such a great job of having a mix of Spanish and English just constantly throughout the show. But since they are using more, Latin varieties. I think mostly Mexican, Spanish. I don't generally need to focus on the subtitles nearly as much, but when I watch shows from Spain, I'm just like, what's happening here? (laughs) Oh no. So yeah, it is interesting how we're creating a new language almost.
1: The good thing about Netflix is that they are incorporating teams of actors from different regions and from different dialects And it is now more common to see actors from different varieties interacting and and acting with their own accent. So that's a way also to be exposed to other varieties and to develop our passive competence and uh, in a way uh, restructuring all these accents. But it's interesting how how this market and the, and the media are reframing and, and making new paths for for these varieties to encounter and, and to interact.
2: Yeah, I'm going to bring a bit my regional side out, but I was very proud when I saw that in Netflix for the first time they did a Galician TV show. It's in Spanish, not in Galician, but it's always in Galicia and all the actors and actresses, they all speak that variety and the accent sounds like that. And it's famous throughout Spain because it comes from Netflix. So I was very happy that they're actually introducing this and also like in minority languages or smaller regions which have a specific dialect or variety that is not very known, for instance, internationally, maybe just inside Spain, but not outside.
0: That must be so nice to see that, to have that like little bit of yourself like in the media. That must be so cool.
2: Yeah. So I don't know, heartwarming. Yeah. <laughs> and so what you were mentioning that we have like, The Mexican-Spanish that you kind of associate, I actually have been called Mexican and I've received the comment on being, yeah, like you're from Spain, but you speak the same language, so you're identified as coming from the same place, you're kind of, you have the same culture, the same language is the same thing. For you, eating nachos and tacos is the same than eating, like for someone that is Mexican when it's actually not. So why do you think this happens? Like, have you encountered this or how can we tackle these stereotypes and these tendencies to associate us, because of the language, associate us as one?
1: Yeah, that happens a lot. It has happened to me. I have to say that it has ha- happened to me in, when I was living in the U.S. and in Canada. There, there's this understanding of Spanish as, uh, as, as one thing which is good in a way because we are all part of the Hispanic-speaking world and we share so much. But uh, sometimes the adjective in English can be used to address the language, Spanish language, or the culture or uh, the ethnicity. So it's hard to condensate all this uh, perspective in just one word. And that's probably one of the causes of the misconceptions and, the, and, and problems when referring to what is Spanish or, or what's a Spanish language. In Spanish, we have more uh, adjectives to talk about all this. We have Hispano, Español. Hispanico. So uh, we could play a bit more and differentiate the language, the region, the culture, the identity. But in English, it's it's harder. So yeah, I, I guess it's a question of knowing geography probably and history and then also acknowledge that the Spanish speaking world is really rich. There are so many ethnicities within, within it. So many countries, so many regions, as I was mentioning before. We we cannot forget about Afro descendants, about the role of Africa in in Spanish, which is also super important. About uh, using Spanish now in some uh, African republics, such as Equatorial Guinea, where uh, this is still an official language, or in the Philippines. Uh, so uh, yeah, there's so much to learn and to know, and and we as Spanish teachers, uh, we need to to work on that uh, also to share. Uh, the proper knowledge of, of what we represent.
2: And since you're a Spanish teacher and you're related to that area, what Spanish variety do you use when you teach what you focus on?
1: Well, um, we all teach From a variety and and it's impossible to neutralize our language, especially when when we are teaching because we are thinking about many other aspects. So uh, being from Madrid, I I mainly teach a Castilian variety, a a central Spain variety. Although uh, being a sociolinguist, I am very concerned and unconscious about uh, what is uh, missing in my variety and how should I incorporate other accents, other varieties that are actually much more spoken and common than mine. So I'm always working on on balance uh, different varieties and not giving for granted that my variety is the, the standard or represents the norm at all. I also teach sociolinguistics and uh, different courses on Spanish dialectology. So I am able to do that very easily in in other courses at a higher level. But uh, it's true that we should incorporate this aspect, uh, these sociolinguistic components from the very beginning, making sure that the students are aware that we represent just one possibility of many, many others.
2: Well, I've never encountered this situation myself, but maybe you have. So when, for instance, students, you try to expose them to more than one variety, but there's teachers who actually don't. So they learn either the mainly Madrid variety or the Mexican variety. Have you encountered a situation where students have learned Spanish from different varieties in the same classroom? And how do you react to this? Or how do you work with this? Do you kind of encourage the use of all of them and that all of them are the same or you kind of neutralize all of them and kind of make them all use the same type of variety? How, how would you tackle this issue?
1: Well, um, yeah, this happens a, a lot of time and especially in, in, in universities as ours, as Edinburgh University, where, where you have students coming from America, from Asia, uh, from all parts of the world, you, you'll find students with, exposed to different varieties. I think it's important and it's part of of their linguistic competence to develop this capacity to understand and to use uh, different varieties, especially when uh, you are graduating in this language and you are acquiring a very uh, advanced level. So it's part of the curriculum for sure. And it's just a a way to enrich the the classroom and, and open the conversation. Many of our students, especially the ones coming uh, from Britain, get to the university with a a very European accent. But they start transforming it uh, as soon as they get in contact with other tutors from other parts or when they engage with content from Latin America. Or when they go to Latin America to spend their year abroad, we have exchanges with Argentina, Chile, Mexico, and also teaching positions in uh, Ecuador, Colombia. Uh, so there are many, many chances that they end up visiting Latin America and embracing the, the that way. Uh, to speak, which also mo- makes more sense when you actually have English as, as your uh, first language, because uh, in terms of phonetics, it, it may be more easy to, to pronounce Spanish as a, as a Latin American uh, does. Unless you are a Scottish, you're able to pronounce the G and the R uh, as <laughs> a good Scottish, and that's totally uh, suitable for, for European <laughs> Spanish. So you never know what, what's going to be more easy for you.
2: It's super interesting that you're actually emphasizing this global aspect of the language and kind of also playing with the strengths of the students. Because if you say that phonologically for them is easier, like the Latin American varieties than actually the European, but for Scottish it isn't. It's great that you're actually playing with even the students' background towards the global aspects of Spanish. I've never actually heard of that. Like, I'm so happy. Like, every, every day we learn something new. <laughs>
1: <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, when you teach in Edinburgh, you can tell exactly who is Scottish and who isn't in the Spanish class because of their Jotas and their R's. It's yeah, very, very easy to, to identify.
0: It's so funny. <laughs> A friend of mine who is Israeli like me, um, since in Hebrew we do have the Ch sound, uh, was learning when I got to university. Started learning German. And was just like, got this. I can make this sound, no problem. And the teacher just turned to them one day and was like, tone it down a little bit. You're a little bit too aggressive about that. And I was like, this is the one sound I can do. I can't even roll my R's. <laughs> it's so interesting though that you can identify like, I know where you were raised. Just from this one letter. I got it. <laughs> oh, yeah. Even like,
2: I don't know, different Spanish dialects into English. Mm-hmm. You know where you're, well, or more or less on like, not maybe exactly the region, but then you can't tell where you're from and why you struggle with those sounds, which makes sense. We use this in a classroom to help the learners as well. Have you encountered like learners, Spanish learners interacting with different Spanish varieties, like reacting to them badly or like not expecting the variety or not being able to, not accepting the varieties or like the global side of the language just wanting to stick to one?
1: Yeah, that this is still very common language attitudes and 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 yeah, prejudice is everywhere, and uh, learners uh, inherit that from their teachers, uh, unfortunately. And there's still a lot of work to do around that. Unfortunately, not all the Spanish varieties are considered. Uh, the same in terms of prestige or political dominance or cultural level, and there's still a lot of prejudice against, for example, Andalusian Spanish when talking about European Spanish or other varieties such as Chilean or Caribbean within Latin America that are less um, appreciated by teachers by learners by users so uh, this is something that that we need to also address appropriately and directly uh, in, in class and also this is something that we need to address when training training teachers of spanish that's also very very important there's a very recent study uh, that showed that Almost seventy percent of UK teachers of, of Spanish have never been taught any sociolinguistic aspect of the language, so they just go to the schools and start teaching the language uh, with uh, very uh, uh, naive perceptions of what the language of what the language is, and we and we know that it's a very complex side of the language that we need to understand and to address properly. We need to be prepared to answer students when raising these prejudices. And it's not always the case. So there's a lot of work to do around that. And that's also a very important part of of my job as teacher trainer.
2: I I assume, well, I guess these ideas are more associated to students who are in intermediate or advanced level who already have like a bit more of an idea of what the language involves, the culture behind it and the varieties. But someone who is a beginner, do they hear the different varieties and identify them as different languages, or they can work with them, mixing them, or they're capable of separating them by like learning them, I don't know how to explain it, like as two separate varieties, but that you can mix or use separately, or simply as different, they see them as different languages and they just focus on one because they're beginners and they're starting.
1: No, in the case of Spanish, there, there's no need for that. You can introduce and expose students to many varieties from the very beginning, from their first course, intending that, that you select appropriately the text uh, or the audios or the videos or, or the experiences in which these varieties are introduced. But as I say, if you uh, select a standard, common, formal text representing different varieties, The intercomprehension is guaranteed, so uh, the language is very unified at that level, so it would be possible to expose students to, uh, I don't know, um, media from Argentina, from Chile, from Spain, from uh, Mexico, without having problems in terms of comprehension, unless there are specific terms that need to be uh, then addressed and explained. But varieties should be introduced from the very beginning from the A1 level uh, and then build up according to the curriculum to the to the development of the language introducing also grammar variation explaining how grammar can be restructured depending on on the level on, on the phenomena and and also talking about yeah the different aspects of the culture
0: yeah i just i wanted to mention this one thing cuz I have been a learner of Spanish. Fun fact. (laughs) Yeah. So as I've mentioned, I was just like, we learn so much of speaking Spanish a specific way. Like I remember in high school, it probably wasn't this short, but in my mind, we spent a week studying Spain Spanish. And it was really like, the difference here is vosotros versus nosotros for we. And I was like, that's it. That's the only difference between these two different types of language. But like, it, it is really interesting. Like I studied Spanish for four years. And was surrounded by Spanish speakers my whole life, but mostly cause they were Latin American Spanishes. When I interact with like people who speak Spanish from Spain, it really is a moment for my brain to just be like, wait, what am I hearing? And I feel like, yeah, exactly what you're saying. As long as that's introduced in the classroom, hopefully that wouldn't have happened. <laughs> like it'd be easier for us to, you know, understand it quicker. <laughs> I think that should be done even inside
2: Spanish native speakers. Because for me, with uh, having a minority language, they did it great for me, in my opinion, uh, when they, I got taught Galician at school, they do teach us social linguistics. We have a section of the course that is based on social linguistics and how Spanish influences my Galician or why do we use certain words. And then I understood how those two languages played together and why there were differences with some speakers or with some even varieties inside my minority language. But no one did the same with the Spanish. So when I got and moved to Madrid to start it, when I started university, I found myself I didn't speak Spanish properly. I did not use the right verbs because I only use simple forms. Because in my minority language, in Galician, we only use simple forms. We don't use complex ones. So no one understood what I was talking about in the past because no one knew what I was saying. Because I didn't use the right term, like the right terms, the right forms. And then I used a lot of words that they were like, Wait, What are you talking about? And I thought they were synonyms. And they were actually not synonyms. They were two separate languages. So no one actually explained me. You can't, like, this is not Spanish. Like, you separate that. So using it with, and of course, when other varieties of Spanish were spoken, yes, I did get that because that was explained, but not the variety inside my own country. So it's great that even that in, like, Foreign language learners—they're actually learning all these synonyms because then they manage to kind of travel around the world or the world or interact with different speakers from different varieties, and no problems of communications will arise. But ha- there has to be this type of teaching inside the Spanish classroom as well for native speakers because that happens to us as well. And then it's more about me how I react. To people, well, in my case, I was the one who, who was shocked because people wasn't understanding me and I was speaking the same language and I was a native speaker. So I think it's, it's, there are aspects that are they're great, they're being introduced in a classroom and they should be introduced in all the classrooms, in my opinion.
1: <laughs> no, absolutely. Yeah, it's, this, this is very important. And for some reason, it, it's not a pri- priority, it has never been. Sociolinguistics is not considered part of the core curriculum of any uh, language course at high school level or for foreign uh, learners. Uh, but it's, it is really important to, to kind of establish connections from the beginning to just have the impulse to, to check, to go and, and find a way to have the resources to, to verify all these uh, varieties and, and, yeah, and use them or at least recognize them.
0: I find it really interesting that you mix the two different varieties of the language that were spoken around you. Because generally, because I know with bilingual kids, they don't mix the languages with people who don't speak. They know not to speak, like somehow. I don't know how kids do it. They, they're just, kids are amazing, honestly. Um, they know not to mix the languages that they speak if the person they're speaking to doesn't speak one of those languages. And so I would assume that, if it, that it would be the same as dialects because there's been recently some research That has shown that we process different dialects similar to processing different languages and that we can code switch and switch between the two languages like that. So like, have you, when it comes to language acquisition, Carlos, I don't know if you can say anything about that, this specific situation about how if children are exposed to two different, more varieties, I was like two, there are more than two varieties of Spanish. um, Do they normally mix them or do they separate them?
1: Well, yeah, I I know that there's now research on on how b dialectal children uh, deal with their two dialects. And I have read studies comparing Cyprus Greek with uh, standard Greek uh, in children and how have they developed both varieties. And it's quite similar to what happened with, with bilingual uh, children with two languages. And we can actually talk about being bilingual within your own language. I I would totally agree with that assumption or being bi-dialectal. And uh, that's, that's very common. And I think we all do to some extent. Of course, if your variety is more is is more different or more distant the need of becoming be, be dialectal is it may be more present or may appear sooner in your life but uh, we all do that in a way we all transition from our uh, local dialect to a more standardized dialect and it's just a, a different a question of, of distance between what is your stand, your local dialect and what is the, considered the standard in that region and, and speaker do that all the time. So we can just say that Maria, for example, is apart from being bilingual is be dialectal. She speaks Spanish from Galicia and more standard Spanish from Spain. And, and she has that, that capacity to change, to code switch and to go back and forward from from one to the other. And in a way, we all do, especially when, for example, when we live abroad or when we are teaching and we need to module uh, our language and uh, make it more neutral. So, um, yeah, so it would be very interesting to compare how these uh B-dialectal children behave and how they feel the need to to speak differently and why is that and when.
2: I'm absolutely interested because I do realize like, well, studying linguistics and analyzing the own languages, your own languages is great. I love it. It's stressful, but I love it. When I speak Spanish in Galicia or before I moved to Madrid for the first time, my Spanish was this variety, the Galician variety. And then I could accommodate to other varieties, but that was my main variety. And then I moved to Madrid for three years and my variety changed. And then my main variety was Madrid's variety. And then I moved abroad. And abroad, my variety changed again towards a mix between Madrid and Galicia, because now I know I don't use the verbal forms people in Galician use, but I still use the vocabulary and many things because my main exposure right now is from Spanish speakers from Galicia more than Madrid, because I don't live there anymore. And my connection with Madrid was that I live there only. So if it changes in me that I'm an adult, and I'm also aware of all these changes, imagine in a child, it would be such a cool research to run.
1: And of course, we have great examples of by dialectal celebrities. We can see Rosalia from Barcelona singing flamenco with Andalusian accent or, well, I don't know, many other singers or actors that try something new or just to, to give another flavor to their music or their art. So it happens for all kinds of purposes.
2: I mean bilingualism, language contact, by dialectal topics. Since we're on this line, in the Spanish-speaking world, well, I've mentioned that we have Galician. You've mentioned that there's Catalan, and we know there's also Basque. We have an episode on Basque and the con- like, the bilingualism in the Basque country. So those are the three official languages in Spain, and that's more known probably for a European audience. It might not be as obvious what languages Spanish is in contact with in South America. Could you give us a few examples of bilingualism, a language contact there, like maybe the main spoken languages apart from Spanish in the continent?
1: Absolutely. As we were saying before, the, the richness of the typology and, and language families in Latin America and in the Americas is incredible. Nothing compared to uh, what we have in Europe. And there are still more than 50 millions of, of speakers of indigenous languages in Latin America, which include North America, the Caribbean, Central America and South America. And some of these languages are very well populated. They are considered major languages that are still used by very large communities and that are contributing still today to paradigities of Spanish in contact with indigenous languages. So to name the most importance, I would say that we need to think about Nahuatl, which is uh, the language spoken in central Mexico, around Mexico City and other states, up to Jalisco, Mayan, which is spoken in the Yucatan Peninsula and in various countries of Central America, Quechua in the Indian countries, south of Colombia, south of Venezuela, Ecuador, Peru, northern Argentina, Bolivia, and the north of Chile, Aymara, another language very similar to Quechua from the same family spoken in Bolivia, Guarani, Guarani. A language spoken with a lot of speakers in, in in Paraguay and Mapudungun or Mapuche, a language spoken still in Chile and in some parts of uh, of the border with Argentina, which is also very important. Those languages, all these languages, ha- have contributed a lot to Spanish to the is in contact, and are still representing big indigenous cultures with their own literature, their own cultural traditions. So they are very important and they're still taught and protected by, by states. Apart from that, we can think about diversity. There are many, many other languages. For example, only in Colombia, there are 13 linguistic families of languages and 68 native languages, including Creoles, languages from the Tucano family. Arawakan languages, Chipcha languages, Witoto languages, Caribe languages, so many, many coexisting languages interacting among them and also uh, contributing and and interacting with the Spanish.
0: That's such a diversity. Seriously. Wow. If language didn't hold certain weight as they do. And because of, you know, the distance and everything, we would, I, in my mind, has only be speaking one global language at this point, if that is how what had happened. But clearly, there is something about language and our connection to it. We have this attachment to this language, to the way that it is. And so that they haven't all just become one language like that, you know, cause there is this push, everyone always has this drive for a global language or something like that. But it's like, well, clearly we have a very strong connection to our languages. So that's why they stick around and that's why we keep them and that's why we fight for them. I think that's fantastic. Diversity should be kept. (laughs) Absolutely.
2: I think we've emphasized, we've mentioned this in other episodes and we've emphasized this and I will never stop saying it. Diversity is key in this world. Yeah. Be
0: vocal and have people be aware.
1: Well, of course, talking about the United States, we we should also consider that the the Spanish of the United States is one more variant to study, to to think about, is as legitimate as any other. And it may be the more prominent variant in the next 50 years when uh, the Latino communities in the U.S. reach or surpass the the numbers of speakers in Mexico and become the first Spanish-speaking country by numbers. This will happen according to the experts in 2050. Wow. So the U.S. will be leading the, the future of the Spanish language if things continue to grow as they are now.
0: That'll be really interesting to see. I would love to see
2: many, I don't know if you agree, Carlos, what you just said, saying it in front of a lot of people in Spain. I would love to see their faces because <laughs> we have the tendency to think that we're the center of the world, but we actually are. And not even, you said it, we are 5% of the speakers of Spanish.
1: No, yeah, yeah, that's, that's our future and there's nothing we can do about it. <laughs> the weight of the language is no longer in Europe. It hasn't been in Europe for many centuries. So we are just kind of uh, in the periphery of the heart of the language in
0: a way.
2: A minority somehow. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, totally.
0: (laughs) Oh my God. Tell them that they're a minority. They'd just be like, what?
2: yeah.
0: What?
2: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I've always considered myself a minority, but knowing that my home country, not only my region, is a minority is actually perspective changing.
0: (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah, it really does shift about, you know, this, this position of power that Spain has had in the Spanish language for so long. You're like, oh yeah, you guys really, sorry to say, you guys aren't really leading the change. I mean, within Spain, yes. Globally, not so much anymore.
1: No. (laughs)
0: That's not a bad thing, though. No. That's like, then that's just, that's how language moves and language evolves. And speaking about learning languages and things like that, you you are a Spanish teacher for 20 years. 20 years. Yeah. So, yeah. So you've got a little bit of experience doing that. What, what's your, the best advice you would give to someone who is just starting out learning Spanish? What would you tell them to, like, obviously there is the, remember this one grammar point, but like, what's the thing you think that they should really kind of embody when they start their journey learning Spanish?
1: Well, it's a question of attitude, being open, don't, don't be too strict or uh, too harsh with yourself. Try to forget what you sound, don't be shy. It's a question of attitudes, of acquiring strategies, skills, and potentially being able to to go to, to the country, to any of them, and, and practice in, in a real context. That's also very rewarding, and it can be a way to really fall in love with the language and to use it. But any way of approaching the language, reading, watching Netflix, TV, or a, yeah, following courses, a studying for those are a good way to start. In Edinburgh, there are many, many opportunities to get in, in contact with the languages, all type of courses. There are tandem programs to practice one-to-one conversation with native speakers. So all these things are, are useful and can help you from the very beginning.
0: Yeah. I like your point about attitudes, that it really does come from because if you're going to fight it from the beginning, then you're never going to learn it. 100%. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Would you have any different advice for someone who's a little bit farther along, who's like at those advanced stages or hitting those plateaus where they're not hitting their goals? Would you say anything else differently or?
1: Well, um, practice, you know, be, be more reflective, read a lot. It is very important from cognitive perspective to read, to see the language, to, to retain the language not only via the input, but also visualizing it and yeah, be meth- methodic, uh, learn from your mistakes, analyze yourself as a speaker and see uh, and identify areas that you can improve. So it it takes a lot of time, many years, just know that it's a, a lifelong process and uh, that is very, very hard to become proficient quickly. So take it easy and just enjoy the process. And just also remember that you will always have your accent, that the ideal speaker doesn't exist and the native model is no longer relevant. So remove all this uh, heritage and be yourself in the language.
0: That's beautiful. I
2: love that. That's an advice I need to remind myself when I speak in English. (laughs) Oh yeah, that's what I say.
0: (laughs) I need to remind myself that all the time though. Just be yourself. Like, yes,
2: (laughs) trust yourself,
0: be yourself. I like that.
2: So I have experience as a Spanish teacher. Do you have any general advice you would give to me or our audience that will include some Spanish teachers, hopefully? (laughs) Do you have any advice you would give us when teaching in English-speaking countries?
1: Mm, Well, I'm a very firm um, advocate of using the target language since the day one of your class. So don't be scared of uh, being seen as a bit of a of a crazy teacher just using Spanish, but I would insist on doing that from the very beginning to make the classroom spaces a natural space for the use of the language. I know that in British tradition, a lot has been done through translation, through English, and I don't think that's the correct approach because there's such a little space uh, and room and time during the week to practice the language that we should just embrace it and do an immersion experience, even just for an hour. So that would be my main advice. And in general, for any teacher, keep developing yourself as a teacher, gaining more knowledge about the language that you're planning to teach, developing skills, and also having positive attitudes about learning of the language. Remember how you were taught. Remember yourself as a learner to empathize with, with other students and just, yeah, enjoy.
0: We are unfortunately almost done. I was just wondering, was there anything that you wanted to shamelessly self-promote right now or talk about? Or was there anything that came to your mind while we were talking? This is your time. The spotlight is on you.
1: Well, I'm just very happy to announce that we, we are going to be launching a new project that has been funded by the Una Europa The network of European universities, which uh, Edinburgh University is part of and is actually uh, looking into linguistic variation in post-colonial context is historical, social, contact, linguistic perspective. And we're actually going to compare uh, what you were asking, how Dutch, French, English, Spanish have behaved in this post-colonial context. So. I'm very much looking forward to that. It's going to be a project shared by six European universities, so it's very exciting. And also, in line with diversity and teaching diversity, I'm just very happy to announce that a new book uh, is going to be published. I'm uh, one of the editors uh, about diversity of Spanish and how to teach it, La Diversidad del Español y su Enseñanza, and it will be published in August by Rutledge. Any teacher who in need of some advice and guidance is welcome to look at it and see what can be
2: of use. I'm definitely getting a copy of that.
0: (laughs) These are, yeah, this is perfect. I love how we were literally just talking about this and you have literal things that are connected to it. That's so great. Oh, it's so exciting.
2: Real issues with real actions to those issues and solutions. Exactly.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So in a more slightly fun way, I like to say that, which is funny because as academics, we love our research and we love producing these things and we love telling people about our research. (laughs) So as I mentioned in the introduction, the 23rd of April is International Day of Spanish Language. So what would you recommend people to do to celebrate this day in any variety of Spanish?
1: Well, uh, traditionally, very traditionally, on this day, we would participate in a common reading of Don Quixote by Cervantes. And that's something that has been done uh, for ages uh, that day because it's the day of the centenary of Cervantes. So we could keep that idea of of organizing a communal reading, but maybe just choose uh, another piece of work, another author, something that is of interest for us or relevant to our community. And just read it out loud, because reading is something that we can all try to do in in a foreign language. Spanish phonetics are not very complex, are very simple. One of the most simple, I I would say, along with Italian, probably. So that's something we can organize online, physically, and just uh, celebrate the language by reading out loud.
0: I had no idea that Don Quixote was read on Spanish language day.
1: Well, all the Spanish teachers abroad have a lead of donkey Quixote on, on them. So, yeah, I can feel sometimes connected to this character. Yeah.
0: Thank you so much, Carlos, for joining us. It's been really enlightening and has been really exciting to see just how Spanish has, you know, f- I'm doing this weird arm movement thing kind of flown through history and through culture. And thank you so much for joining us. Just want to say thank you to everyone who is listening. If you want to learn more about Carlos and his work, we have all of the links to the projects that he'll be working on in the description. You can find more about him with a link to his website page in the description as well. And as I mentioned, the 23rd of April is International Day of Spanish Language. So if you'd like to read Don Quixote, now is the time. Thank you so much for listening. We hope you tune in next time. As always, stay safe, stay healthy, and adiós. See you later.